Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. My name's Jason Fleming. The More Than My Past podcast will see me talking to a wide range of inspiring people. People who have confronted and overcome addiction or imprisonment or both and turned their lives around. I did mad things that was hurting myself and hurting other people. Everybody grows up in a house called normal. Heroin addiction and chaos was my normal. Some people don't understand the word moderation and uh, I was definitely one of those people. The More Than My Past podcast. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like listen to? Um... <laughs> Chart music. <laughs> Chart music. You pop craze youngsters, and welcome to the latest episode of Chart Music, the podcast that gets his hand right down the back of the settee on a random episode of Top of the Pops. I'm your host, Al Needham, and by my side today are David Stubbs and Taylor Parks. Good afternoon. Boys, by the look of you, I can just tell that you're simply burst into Tome of all the pop and interesting things that have occurred in your life since we last spoke. Spill it on me, baby. Yeah, feeling pretty good. But yeah. Al, have you heard have you heard about this virus that's going around? It sounds terrible. It does, doesn't it? I'm joking, of course, because we all need laughter at this Indeed. difficult time. <laughs> yeah. I, don't know, I think all these years, in a way, what this country's been waiting for is something to make us all more isolated and suspicious of each other. Yes. <laughs> Taylor, the pop crazed youngsters have been tugging me coat asking about you. They've been fretting about you, mate. Have they? Put their mind at rest. Well, you know. You're dill dandin', aren't you? Feeling good. Looking great. Uh, that's for other people to say, but, you know. Yeah. Could be worse. David. Uh-huh. What you been up to? Well, scamp you. Yeah, so the very last thing that I did before lockdown clamped down was um, I gave a talk with a chap, uh, a friend of mine, um, who wrote a book about craft work. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I remember starting the evening with a very weak coronavirus joke, uh, oh, not remotely no. imagining that, uh, you know, that it was going to um, do what it did. And um, yeah. and ever since then, you know, I've not moved sort of more than about sort of half a mile from where I'm sitting right now at any particular point. Terrible. And not even in most directions. And I don't I don't really mind, you know, it's kind of sad really. Um It's frightening, isn't it? Yeah, that I don't really mind and that it's not that much different from what my life was before, really. I think everyone's got their own weak coronavirus jokes, though, aren't they? Yeah. Because like a week before it all kicked off, I, I did a big shop for me mum. Mm. I was just rammed down with big shopper bags, so I thought, fuck this, I'm getting a taxi. And 
were talking about it. He just said, oh, you, you heard on the news that the first case of coronavirus has happened in Nottingham. And I said, yeah, and it's me. And I, as soon mm. as it came out of my mouth, I regretted it. Oh, and yeah. what made it worse was I actually started choking at the shitness of my own joke and turned into a coughing fit. Oh. And it was a, an awkward silence <laughs> yes. uh, for, the, for the rest of the journey. Uh, mm. And since then, every chance I've had to get a taxi, I've taken it in the hope of seeing this driver. Number one, see if he's still alive. And number two, just to fucking apologise and, and give him a, a, an absolutely massive tip for being such a knob uh, all those weeks ago. <laughs> oh, it would have been about ten weeks ago, man. It's costing me a fucking fortune. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The one good thing about lockdown is we, we've learned about each other, haven't we? we? There's been all that list shit that went down yeah. very early on before everyone got bored with it. But we learned about one of your old jobs, didn't we, David? You know, you did, you did that list where here are 10 jobs that I've done and one of them's a lie. Yes, that's right. Um, one of them, which was the truth, which I was hoping to be the truth, was... Mm-hmm. A scarecrow. He, David Stubbs used to work as a scarecrow, everyone. <laughs> yeah, as a human scarecrow. I mean, I was actually pretty much dressed for Stubbage. <laughs> Wurzel Stubbage. These were the these were the post punk days, you know. They had the kind of long sort of third hand overcoat or whatever, and like you know, trousers sort of cut off at half mast or whatever, and uh, hair kind of poking out in all directions up top. And um, yeah, and you know, because basically, it's no use having a kind of static scare. So you know, the other one of the no. farms, you know, the idea of like you know, somebody was kind of an actual human being, you know, rather than. Um, you know, and I just sort of take me a little paperback book and stride around, and uh, yeah. What were you reading? Um, Nausea by Jean Paul Sartre. <laughs> <laughs> Wurzel's got his French philosopher head on, Salah. <laughs> Want to say any more about it, David? You know, because this is this is going to be good careers advice for a lot of people in the post-corona world. No, I mean, I suppose it's ironic that the tune I was listening to the most at that point was "The Dignity of Labour" by the Human League. <laughs> <laughs> It's really though those those lists were getting me down. It's the way that lockdown, like everyone thinks, oh, it's a time to be, you know, to contemplate and to find some deep truths. It's all that's happened is it's exposed everybody's shallows, <laughs> you know, and everyone's doing top ten lists and sort of boring restatements of old consensus stuff. It's like everyone's too spooked to look deep into themselves or deep into <laughs> anything. So you just end up with all this trivia, mm. you know what I mean? And it's driving me nuts. Yeah. It's very blokey as well. I mean, it's real blokes going to bloke stuff, isn't it? But having said that, here's one that I've thought of. What's the least played side in your entire record collection? <laughs> Mine would be the B-side of Snot Rap by Kenny Everett, <laughs> which is Snot Rap brackets instrumental. it's like if there was a version of the Kenny Everett show where it was just a pure white screen for half an hour and he never came on (laughs) oh and here's another what song's got the creepiest opening line my vote is for She Hangs Out by the Monkeys. the opening line of which is how old you say your sister was it's not meant that way he's expressing concern for her welfare but pop stars will be pop stars Mm. but it's yeah it's I mean I wouldn't say I was having a great lockdown. No. I mean, better than the CEO of Skype. (laughs) (laughs) must feel like quite the tit at the moment. (laughs) Um, But I've actually had quite a lot of interesting experiences in lockdown. Unfortunately, all of them are exactly the same um, and can't really be discussed in public. It's like (laughs) Christmas in reverse, isn't it? It's like a massive, drawn-out, negative, uh, sunny Christmas. 
you know. But I'm trying to stay positive as usual because, I mean, usually my life is all about envy, rage and shame. And at least now I get a temporary break from two of those. <laughs> um, and, I mean, I, I do really miss seeing people. But in truth, most of the people I really miss, I, I wasn't going to see them anyway, mm. you know. Either because they've gone forever or because they were only going to ring and cancel two hours before they were due to come around <laughs> anyway, you know, and be too late to arrange anything else. And I was going to end up sitting on my own watching old Italian horror movies and fretting about how isolated I'd become. Mm. So, you know, really the only difference from normal life is the, the sense of being surrounded by death on a scale not seen in my lifetime. Mm. Uh, and the knowledge that I or the people I care about could be next so i'm taking a tip from an article i read by someone with a posh name and a big garden they said everyone should stay positive so that's what i'm doing yeah. i think telling myself that adds a bit of spice to the experience <laughs> of of staring through glass at the sky <laughs> waiting for a visit from nurse ratchet because i mean I, I haven't left my flat for i haven't left my low ceilinged gardenless stuffy flat for 81 days now because um, i i my chest isn't very good so i don't want to risk it um Man. and so yeah i say let's at least have a little bit of sympathy for all of us who are perfectly healthy but still paying london rent to effectively live in a shipping container <laughs> drifting through interstellar space <laughs> with a picture of a street pasted up where the window should be yeah, exactly. yeah. you're not missing out though taylor trust me so i've been told no yeah. it's just it's just standing in a big queue to get into fucking little yeah distrusting yeah. everyone yeah 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 yeah. i've got to say it's a bit of a letdown because all the hypothetical national emergency scenarios i grew up with did seem to include an awful lot more casual sex than this one. <laughs> yeah <laughs> well, that's the one thing that's absolutely off the um, menu isn't it this is just a, a constant oscillation between boredom and fear mm. um yeah. which is what they say it's like being in the sas mm. <laughs> so this is Basically, this is like being in the SAS, but uh, without all the bumming. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm almost slightly ashamed to say that I actually quite like, <laughs> like certain aspects of it. I actually quite like Zoom. I like, you know, the idea of the, you know, the virtual pub trip, but where at the end, you know, we say you click off, you're not faced with a 90-minute uh, journey across um, London to get home. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> is, is, is one particular thing. Or, What's your background, David? Sorry? Oh, oh, Zoom oh no, no, I said, I'm just my books, my books, you know, my books. <laughs> what, the books you've written? I've written so many, obviously. Specifically, you've got a bookshelf with all your books on them. Multiple <laughs> volumes, of course, but including the Spanish edition of yes. Mars Bar 1980, which I can't give away to anybody. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I've got four or five copies of that going. Sonidos de Marte. Oh. Um, Any of the pop craze young steros want a free copy of that? Um, say, yeah. Hola at your nice. boy, as they say. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> yeah, because me and Taylor, we found a cache of older ATV presenter backgrounds, didn't we? <laughs> I'm not even doing Zoom, man. I can't even handle that. Yeah, yeah. You know, I get invited on Zoom things, and I just can't do it because I'm just sitting. The thing is, right, it's awkward for me. Uh, you know, you wouldn't know it, but I'm a very shy lad. Oh. And, you know, when I'm, at, when I'm out with people in a pub, you know, I, I do kind of like meld into the background and, and just, just sit there. It's even worse on Zoom because, you know, it's like you're sitting in a pub, but you can see your own fucking face. And it's like, you know, everyone's gassing on and everything. I go, mm. oh, look at the fucking state of me. Yeah, yeah. There, there is that. The it's horrible, man. It's like, it's like someone's put a massive mirror 
on the table and just go, look at you, you cunt, while you're talking shit or just listening. But a lot of bars, a lot of bars have those mirrors anyway, don't they? The kind of mirrored walls. So you quite often yeah. get that experience. Um... Yeah, no, I avoid them. Mm. But I've got a brilliant background, Taylor. I might lend it to you because I'm pr- not going to use it. You know that news footage of the IRA dirty protest where the those two blokes with the Jesus beards have, have like made a like a play school style house on the wall in their own shit. Yeah. That's what I'd use as a zoom background. <laughs> right. That's what you, that's what you're well, telling good, everyone. Anyway, it'd be great if you went on a zoom date and you had that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know what you mean though. I, it, there's, there's something horrible about when you're trying to concentrate on talking to other people about looking at your own face. It's, I mean, the, one mm. of the nicest things about lockdown is I haven't had to look in a mirror. Um, cause I'm not going out. So I don't give a fuck, you know what I mean? It's it's yeah. really it's a real weight off your shoulders to not have to get a daily reminder of your slow decay. That's one of my favourite things. <laughs> uh, the other being the fact that they can't make telly anymore, which I'm really enjoying because I, I just get yeah. a real sort of Schadenfreude out of that. I, also, I like the fact that it means they have to show old stuff, and I'm almost hoping that the lockdown drags on and on and on just to see how far down the barrel they're going to sink. Oh God! So yeah. I mean, we may yet be sitting there in 2023 watching old episodes of Night Network, um, all those yes. those American stand-up comedy programs from the 80s that they used to put on at one in the morning. You know what I mean? We'll be oh, sat yeah. there. Watching telly, it's just a brick wall. Bloke in a pleated suit comes on. So, what about this AIDS then? <laughs> Pretty scary stuff, huh? <laughs> Can't wait. In a, any kind of way, I mean, it's going to sound slightly pompous, unlike me, but um, I think the banality of the spectacle has taken a bit of a hammering throughout all of this, really. Even, and I'm not just talking about necessarily, you know, crap TV, but actually, even sports. I don't know anybody who doesn't feel that they don't give a shit whether the football season is completed or not they really don't you know and that's despite you know no. the, the huge investment that a lot of people a lot of friends that I have having football most of them feel I don't really care you know it's just, it's almost like this has kind of acted as a sort of mass deconditioning you know for the um, irrationality of like being into sports or whatever all I'm bothered about is UEFA finally cancelling the Champions ah, yes, League yes. so I can have Nottingham 2 London one day I'm sitting here <laughs> waiting for the fucking thing and it's yeah. it's, it's yeah, June yeah, for fuck's sake. I want to shoot me bolt. And I'm, I'm not being allowed to, man. I'm being mm, edged. Mm. But it could be worse, right? We could still be living in a time when all of us would have become rich and successful off the back of our extraordinary talents. Right? Yes. And who knows? We would then, you know, we'd have to self-isolate in a mansion like Joe Wiley's with a yes. with a beautiful young woman paid to pretend she could stand to be around us. And <laughs> we'd be, you know, we'd end up releasing video messages to our fans where we yeah. sit a little bit too close to the lens and emit detached positivity, mm. you know. Or, you know, write all these columns about how we are all binging on Netflix <laughs> and stuff, yeah. you know, before sneaking off to break lockdown rules on account of being a maladjusted narcissist you know well no (laughs) as things stand at least we have what remains of our dignity right and no fucking spiky ball is going to roll over that which reminds me i never want to see that bloody thing ever again do you know what i mean right 
everywhere you look on TV or newspaper articles, there it is, the yeah. fucking coronavirus. You know, these mm. days they try not to use big front-page photos of uh, spree killers mm. and lone nut gunmen and stuff because it gives them the twisted fame that they crave, and mm. it's upsetting for relatives. Yeah. And so so you, you think this could be encouraging copycat viruses? Yeah. This, everywhere you look, this fucking evil conquer. He's over everything. It's all you mm. ever see. It's just, I say, fuck him, little cock blocker. Don't give him the satisfaction. If you don't get to see leader of the gang on a top of the pops repeat, yeah. you shouldn't have to look at this fucking spiteful armoured bollock while it's rolling all over the world, you know, crushing everybody's fun. Yeah, you know. bastard. It's not like we're not grown-ups, you know. It's like it's like we can't focus on the biggest national crisis for 75 years without a, a picture mm. of this cuntish globule, you know, <laughs> to provide a childlike visual. It's not helpful. No. You know? But I got plans, right? I got big plans. I was in the supermarket before all this kicked off, and while looking at the magazine rack, I couldn't help but notice that contrary to all these premature reports of print media's calamitous and mm. irreversible decline, um, there is apparently room in the market for three different magazines devoted to carp and carp fishing. Right. Um, it, it, it was amazing. <laughs> there's, there's one called Carp World. Right. Um, there's one called Carpology, Ooh. and a third which clearly fancies itself the the punky young upstart of the bunch, <laughs> which chooses to call itself Total Carp. Oh. Right. Do you get it? Um, so that's my strategy. If I'm still alive when this is all over, uh, using tried and tested publisher's logic, I'm going to take every penny I've saved during lockdown and start a fourth magazine devoted to carp and carp fishing, copying the other three down to the very last detail. <laughs> and in the spirit of a post-COVID-19 world, bruised but uh, hungry for a bright new day, mm. I'm going to call it Carp DM. <laughs> um, and I think this really could be the thing to propel me uh, out of the seedy and frankly demeaning world of podcasting um, <laughs> back into the the bustle and glamour of the modern publishing industry, mm. right? Because despite all the current uncertainty, I think one thing we can say for certain about Britain after the virus is that the only sensible and positive response and the only approved response to the near total absence of money uh, will be to accumulate as much of that money as possible and keep it for yourself. So I'm not going to be left behind, right? I'm going to ride that carp as far as it will take me, <laughs> like, over the rainbow to Shangri-La. It's, that's interesting that you've had your magazine idea. I don't know discuss the magazine idea I had in the late 80s, and I think it's actually um, revivable any time, albeit with a different person. I was a, a magazine called Diana, and every <laughs> month it would just have a big sort of, you know, flattering photo of Princess Diana or whatever, and inside there'd be the lead article, main article would be a very sort of banal, effusive um, piece all about Princess Diana or whatever, you know, um, of great interest to Royal Watch, etc., etc. The rest of the magazine would be devoted to kind of relentlessly grueling avant-garde music or whatever, you know, revolting cocks, <laughs> uh, groom, whatever, young gods or whatever, all the way, you know. And this magazine would just sell on the back of the Diana thing. Or whatever, and so, you know, all this stuff would then get this kind of mass exposure, you know, be kind of... Uh, Riding off the dining. I think it could be done today. It could be done with, you know, Kate Middleton or something like that. Similar sort of thing. Well, my magazine idea nearly came to fruition. 
I was working at Dickie Desmond's wank factory and I, mm. I just realised that there were bin bags full of photos sent in by readers that weren't up to standard for readers' wives. So you can imagine what they were like. And we also had loads of photo shoots that were just fucking insane and just never got used. So I thought, you know, in the spirit of recycling, why don't we take all these and put together a pornographic version of Take a Break called (laughs) Have a Wank? And we did a dummy copy (laughs) of the first issue. And um, the only thing I can remember from it was a story that I wrote based around uh, a photo shoot of um, two women essentially rolling about in someone's back garden with a load of dildos, indulging in very workmanlike uh, girl-on-girl <laughs> action. And I wrote a story called, Look, Dad, There's Lesbians in the Back Garden. <laughs> it was essentially a story about uh, a, an old bloke in Mansfield whose wife had just died, so his son tries to get him interested in an obby. So he buys a load of dildos and whatnot, and he leaves them out in the back garden, and they sit in the upstairs bedroom every night, um, open for some feral lesbians to turn up. And, you know, sure enough, they do. And uh, the only line I can remember from it is uh, the son turning round to his dad at one point and saying, is she giving her a wash, dad? <laughs> And, you know, everyone in the office thought it was a really good idea and, you know, helped me put it together. And, of course, it got presented to Desmond and he he turned it down because he couldn't understand it because he's a fucking cunt. Yeah, there's a surprise. Yes, I was going to say, did it get pitched to uh, Mr. Desmond? Yeah. So, yeah, broke my heart that day. The thing is, normally people are always getting a... (sighs) If there's a cat on your bird table, oh, it's going to keep the birds away. You have a cat on your lesbian table, (laughs) it's going to bring them. So that's how we're getting through lockdown, anyway. (laughs) Anyway, you know how we go about on chart music. Before we do anything else, we stop, we drop, and we bow to the brand new Pulp Craze youngsters who have signed up to Patreon and put a little jingle in our G-string this month. And this month, those people include... Wayne Azarate, Mr. Kerry Thomas, Ethan Harris, Martin Young, Andrew Fielder, Sean Feeler, Elizabeth Kerrigan, Johnny Kerry, Ian Boffin, Faceless Man, Dave Caffrey, Richard Berry, Jane Watson, Keith Bayliss, Bumsy Villian, Jason Brannigan, John Furlong, Jonathan, Chris and Jen, Mark McDonald, Dave Hewitt, Darren Saunders, Jim Brown, and Howard Jones's anal fisher. Mm, marvellous people. Marvellous people. And let's not forget the $3 section. They include Chitanka Dodwalla, Jim Prentice, and Rob Moore. Thank you, you beautiful pop craze youngsters. And Stephen Dowell, thank you very much for jacking your contribution right up over the odds. Here's a very special shake of the arse just for you. Ooh. <laughs> Standing in my doorway, banging a saucepan with a wooden spoon. Yes. <laughs> and of course, those people, like everybody else who subscribes to our Patreon account, get to tinker about with the brand new Chop Music Top 10. Hit the fucking music! We've said goodbye to Insolvis Costello. No. Taylor Parks has 20 romantic moments. Haven't we just? Dean Spunk <laughs> presents a tribute to Ollie Murs. And 
Danger Freaks! <laughs> Which means two up, one down, a re-entry and three new entries. It's a re-entry at number 10 for Lesbian Door Factory. <laughs> new entry at number 9, Lion Bellend. <laughs> Up from number 10 to number 8, it's Dave D, Creeper, Twat and Cunt. Good. New entry at number 7 for the English Rock Defence League. <laughs> Up two places from number 8 to number 6, Jeff Sex. <sighs> Down one place from number five to number four. Here comes Jism. Yes. The highest new entry straight in at number three. The Bombers Conga. <laughs> no change at number two for Romo Ralph Wigan, which means... Britain's number one. Still there at the top of the chart music top ten. Chip Pants People. <laughs> nice. Oh, what a chart. <laughs> I always say, oh, what a chart, but oh, what a chart. We, we, we're living through the sort of 1981, 82, the golden years of this chart, aren't we? Most definitely. So, yeah, Chip Hands people still hanging in there. Mm. The, the new entries, uh, Lion Bellend. Yeah. I, I think that's Ragger, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. English yes. Rock Defence League. Uh, well, yeah. it's... Rockney. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the bummer's conga, well, it could only be hmm. a twist on the uh, on, on the two-tone sound that rocked the nation in the Aventis. Yes, I think so, yeah. yeah. So don't forget, pop craze youngsters, if you want in on this, and who wouldn't, you take your little fingers over to the keyboard, you tap www.patreon.com slash chart music, and you give all you can, if you feel like it, obviously. There's no, no pressure there at all, is there? None. So... This episode, Pop Craze Youngsters, takes us all the way back to March the 20th, 1975. And oh, it's only the second time we've snuffled around the crotch of 75, isn't it? We did uh, did it last time in chart music number six, way, way back in the day with Neil and Simon. And uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a proper mixed bag of mankiness, to be honest with you. Mm. I think this episode's a bit better. Mm. Yeah. I mean, there's there's definite peaks and troughs. Mm. Yeah, there's certainly a, an intimidatingly large amount to talk about. But it's yeah, it's 1975. It's it's that dark, empty space in the middle of the 70s, mm. uh, all rabies and borstals. <laughs> yes, <laughs> 1975. It's it, it's an interesting one because obviously, pop wise, there's a sense in which it's kind of. And a deer, mm. but um, talked about this a little bit before. That like, oh yeah, it wasn't you know just because the pop was rubbish. Don't forget this is the year of like you know Joni Mitchell, um, Kraftwerk's radioactivity. There's actually stuff going on all over the shop. King Tubby meets Rockers Uptown. That's just been released this week. Blood on the tracks, physical graffiti. You know Robert Wyatt's Ruthie Stranger than Richard. Can landed another Green World. Brian Eno, um, John Martin, mm. Sunday's Child, Roy Harper. HQ Parliament, Chocolate City, you know, Burning Spear, Tangerine Dream, if you want a bit of that. Smokey Robinson did mm. a quiet storm, you know, Steely Dan, yes. Kaylee Light. Earth, Wind and Fire all over the shop, Gratitude. And even like Born to Run, if you like that sort of thing. You know, it's, it's, mm. it's um, you know, there's a case of things, all kinds of things happening anyway. Meanwhile, the things that are about to happen, you know, that, that, that year. So in 1975, it's the year that um, Perubu form. 
Florin Gristle also. Yeah. Stranglers have just got going. Talking Heads formed that year. The Ramones just signed their first contract that, that year. And, of course, the Sex Pistols themselves, you know. Yeah. And, you know, so it's not just that punk's about to happen. All kinds of things are happening that are going to sort of, like, transform the future in multiple ways. Um, but, you know, there is definitely a sense of alienation in 1975 because you need... Simon made this point in when he talked in, in previously in chart music. If, if things aren't happening in pop music, then they're really, you know, then that really is the kind of crucial and terrible gap, really. Mm. Um, and you needed you needed something spectacular. You did need a sex pistol for that reason. You know, I mean, Danny Baker always makes this point about, you know, like it's ridiculous to say that nothing was going on or whatever. And he's always he's, he's a bit down on punk these days, despite you know having been there with like sniffing glue and all that, because yeah. he just thinks it's kind of an insult to all that kind of great music, whatever that I listed, you know, and all that. But I don't know that he kind of gets it quite right, really. Although he does make one interesting point. He say, he reckons that punk wasn't so much a reaction against prog rock and stuff like that. It was a reaction against things like the slickness of things like Queen and ABBA and ELO and Rod Stewart. Um, but nevertheless, you know, despite all of like what's happening way right down in the underground and what's happening sort of way up there in the kind of in, in, in the skies and all that, you need a palpable sense of excitement to be happening and to be kind of transmitting onto the sort of top of the pop stage, really. Otherwise, yeah. yes, it, otherwise things are a bit down. I mean, there are only 10 episodes of Top of the Pops from 1975 that are still available. All the rest have been lost forever. Mm. That doesn't help, does it? No, no. It feels like a black hole, 1975, even for people who were there at the time. Yeah. It, it, it's a curious time. There's a general feeling throughout this show, though, that, like, state of music, it, it's not anything. It's weird. It, it's It's like the kind of sort of facsimile of stuff. It's not rock. It's not pop. It's not soul. It's this kind of weird additive adult entertainment it's like Cadbury Smash or Angel <laughs> Delight or whatever it's this kind of synthetic thing, you know with that good um, yeah <laughs> you know in, in, in some respects yeah but you have periods where the best music being made is all in the charts mm. right like the mid 60s yeah. or the you know the Aventis mm. and then you have periods where none of the best music being made is in the charts so when you don't have this momentum in the charts mm. of like great acts inspiring each other or you know acting as a counterpoint to each other that doesn't mean that there's nothing in the charts mm. it means that anything can get in the charts yeah. so you end up with these kind of ludicrous mixed bags which we always see when we do a mid 70s episode you know and as far as punk i remember the last time the three of us were here um, we did, I think it was 76. Mm, yes. There was a little brief bit of soul rail replacement service. Yes. Well, I think it was the stylistics were playing or, you know, the song was playing. They showed you the audience sort of shuffling around in their blue-grey... Uh, shapeless leisure suits and stuff with sort of just grey empty faces and I remember saying at the time that no that's it if you want to know where punk came from or why you know what punk was reacting it's nothing to do with with prog rock or you know and it's that it's just that that's what that's what it looked like. You went out of your house, that's what you saw. Mm. That's where it came from. Mm. There's also a funny feeling about pop in 1975. You know when like, things like the Beano, they do um, they'd have a Roger the Dodgers storyline in which um, he ends up meeting some pop star and it's some, something like Danny and the Dazzlers or something like that. And it, yeah, or, or Alvis <laughs> Parsley. That's right. Or it's some old bloke in Dundee's idea of like what pop music is. Mm. And the ones about what's happening in 1975 is like, that's quite accurate. It is all Danny yes. and the Dazzlers. <laughs> that, it is that kind of just in time as well that mm. was a big mm. that was a big oh, one yeah. on the bash street yeah, yeah. kids yeah, yeah and he actually looked like teacher with uh with a blonde mm. wig oh, on yes 
which yeah. was strange. <laughs> yeah. The funny thing is, of course, it, the Beano did actually anticipate punk. Do you remember Dennis and the Din Makers? Yes. 1973, with, yeah. with Dennis on vocals, Walter on bass, and, and um, Nasher on drums. And um, it was, you know, that was, um, that was 1973, that. Fucking hell. Yeah. Let's get stuck in. Hello, I'm Justin. And I'm Lucy. And together we are the hosts of Plenty Questions. It's a very straightforward general knowledge quiz. We ask you 20 questions, one after the other, five second gap in between, and you shout the answers out. And then you tweet us to let us know how you've got on. See if you can get 20 out of 20. No one has so far, but that's because we haven't started doing it yet. Mm, but we will. Uh, and there's also going to be some fiendish brain teasers. So join us for Plenty of Questions. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. In the news this week... Harold Wilson announces that his government recommends that Britain join the common market in the forthcoming referendum. Aristotle Onassis dies at the age of 69 and leaves his wife, Jackie Kennedy, $100 million. Parliament votes to let John Stonehouse continue to draw his MP salary, even though he's not been in there for four months after faking his own suicide and pissing off to Australia. The Mets are investigating a link between a murdered bunny girl and her appearance in Mayfair magazine. The Shadows, in Stockholm for the Eurovision Song Contest, have asked the BBC to hold official inquiry as to why their song is only number 32 in this week's chart. (laughs) The Maharishi Mahesh Yogi returns to the UK for the first time since 1967 and announces a new Age of Enlightenment from a Kensington hotel. Gary Bran, an 11-year-old from Winchester, has been banned from school for going to the local barbers and getting a full-on Kojak cut. (laughs) The army have been called in to empty the bins in Glasgow after a dust cart driver strike. Evil Knievel is in talks with the East German government about a jump over the Berlin Wall, which sadly doesn't happen. Leeds have knocked out Anderlecht in the quarter-final of the European Cup. The Football League announced that the average admission to First Division games next season will go up to 65 pence and even as much as a pound for the big clubs. But the big news this week is that Elvis has made his first public appearance in Las Vegas in six months and looks dead fat. 
while his doctor claims that he's been eating 10 ice creams a day. (laughs) Fucking hell. And that's just what he told his doctor, so therefore it's 20. Yes, yes. All the shit that was going on with Elvis in his life at the minute, that would be Mm. the one thing that would have electrified the playground. That would have impressed me more than any fucking cars or houses. 10 ice creams a day. Yeah, Yeah, you go, he must be the happiest man in the world. Yeah, yeah, as as big as the Olympic torch with a 99 the size of a child's arm, no doubt. Yes. On the cover of The Enemy this week, Bad Company. On the cover of Lookin', Pilot. The number one LP in the UK is 20 Greatest Hits by Tom Jones. Physical Graffiti by Led Zeppelin is number two. Over in America, the number one single is Black Water by the Doobie Brothers. And the number one LP is Physical Graffiti by Led Zeppelin. So, boys, what were we doing in March of 1975? I would have been in my first year at uh, secondary school, St. Michael's, just about... um... Yeah, just about getting used to it, um, really. Uh, I, I felt it felt like penal servitude when I first went there. Went there, you know, it, it looked like Colditz did the place, and um, uh, I was desperately, desperately miserable. But I think that you know, by March, I you know made a few mates, and I was kind of getting into the swing of things. Also, I discovered that I was um, pretty bright lad as well, you know, in terms of exams and stuff like that. You know, I was um, I wasn't cock of the playground, but I was kind of you know sort of um, who could be in the first year though, well, David. You got to work up to that. Well, no, no. Well, yeah, I mean, you, you, we cock your year. I mean, it's like boxing. You had, like, you know, a, a oh, yeah. cock per year. Yeah. Obviously, you know, you're not going to take on the prefects, but... Uh, no, no, no. 1975, generally, it was the year of typically tropical, which I think, um, you know... Yes. Barbados. And, uh, you know, shortly after, the, around about this time, you know, we did actually... We went on holiday, Um to um to Wales, um, which was always pretty dismal. <laughs> Whatever time of the year, whether it was early or late season, um, you know the um it was always like a trip to the slate mine museum or what have you. It was uh, crazy gold <laughs> fish and chips, but they hadn't taken the bones out of the fish. You know, oh, dismal, man. dismal stuff. But we actually went to Beaumaris, so we adapted um, as our sort of sing song, like the journey along. Um, I managed to sort of adapt the lyrics from typically tropicals um, Barbados, and um, it went something like, "Oh, we're going to Bulmaris, oh, on the island of Anglesey, wow, 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 yeah, drive away onto the M60, then merge onto." The M62, <laughs> all together now, yeah. And uh, I'll be—I'm twelve. I'll be thirteen later that year. But um, I, I was pretty happy with the world, and I felt that, like you know, I mean, I didn't really feel that like pot was in a state of crisis. Actually, um, no. I—I I was very happy, and it felt like you know that like light and the world of light entertainment, popular entertainment, was kind of—it seemed to be almost like set up to please a sort of reasonably bright 12 to 13 year old boy actually everything seemed Mm. to to be pitched directly at me you know I didn't think you know there were a few things like Dave Allen or whatever a bit above my head or what have you and stuff like that but um but generally you know I felt that the world I felt I I was I was pleased with the world and I felt a happy boy Taylor were you even around yeah I was two or three in fact no I'm going to change that I was one or two because I'm knocking a year off my age uh, as a result yeah. of this lockdown <laughs> bullshit, because I is yeah, yeah, this doesn't count, does yeah, it? It's the way I see it, if I don't get to live it, I shouldn't have to lug it around with me like dead skin. So <laughs> exactly. let, let me correct myself. I was one or two, um, but seventy five is the year from which I have my first memories, the first things I can clearly remember and date. Right, for instance, 
my mum and dad had a load of mates around for a party and they spread out the rugs that we would take to the beach on the back garden. And what I remember nice. most clearly, it's a single photographic memory, like a snapshot of me being in the front room, looking out through a window at everyone else having a good time. <laughs> and I remember thinking, okay, I get it. Oh, like mm-hmm. a Dickensian urchin. Yeah. I was probably one of the boys having a good time. Well, this is a very important month for me because it was the year that I finally found out that I wasn't going to die. Oh, yeah. it, it all started about a year ago because I was a really picky eater as a kid. All I'd eat was chips and it drove me mum fucking mental. You know, she'd even buy steak, which cost an absolute fortune on her salary and I'd still cock my nose up at it and mm. give it the dog. And she got so infuriated by it, she picked up the paper one day and there was these photos of of a famine uh, that was going off and she just shoved it in my face and pointed at it and said, if you don't eat, that's how you're going to end up. And uh, I think it was a week later we were doing music and movement and we'd just finished it, we are in the classroom and I'm standing there in my vest and pants and I just look down at myself and my really scrawny belly and I just go into a full-on screaming fit. And the teacher's going, what's, what's up, Al? What's up, Al? And I just went, I'm going to die, miss! Oh, and for a year, I was convinced I was going to die. Just got it in my head. Right. And I went through this routine every morning for a year. I'd get up early while my mum and dad were still in bed and I'd stand by the side of the bed on my mum's side and I'd shake her awake and I'd just look her in the eyes and say this is me dying day ma'am <laughs> and she said oh alright and then we'd get up and I decided I'd, I'd worked out that if I had an egg in the morning it, was, it gave me a really good chance of not dying that day so she'd do me one egg with no soldiers or mm. anything like that and I'd eat the egg and then I'd throw it up because I hated egg ooh and then I'd go to school and just go around telling everyone, you know, I might die today. So, you know, just keep an eye out for me. <laughs> it went on for a year. Right. And we just moved two months ago to the to this new estate. So I'd started at a new school. And I don't know what happened, but I think one of the teachers noticed me on the playground doing this other routine that I had. I basically worked out that I was going to die hmm. and there was nothing I could do about it. But there was one way I could find out that it was imminent and, you know, that like the first stage of my imminent death Mm. was um, my nipples disappearing. (laughs) So I would spend all day (laughs) at school with my hands up my T-shirt feeling for my nipples to see if they were still there. And obviously one of the teachers was looking out across the playground and going, that lad, that new lad who no one talks to, uh, he's just standing there playing with his nipples. Mm. So I think they sent a letter to me mum and they basically hooked her up with a child psychologist. So I remember going to the hospital to see this psychologist and she sat there on the desk going, oh yeah, I've heard you're going to die. Oh, and I said, yeah. He said, oh, well, I don't think you are actually. And she had a stethoscope round her neck and she said, you see this, you know what it does? And I go, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And she put it on my heart and she says, can you hear that? That's your heart. It's a perfectly healthy heart. You're not going to die. And I just said, oh, all right then. Because an authority figure had told me I wasn't going to die. And that was it. I was cured. And I remember this week just standing in my front garden talking to the other kids on the street and saying, oh, you know what? I'm not going to die. So, yeah, a a joyous time for me. I even remember the T-shirt I was wearing. It was grey. 
and it had an, an elephant in a World War One biplane. Mm. So yeah, there we go. Happy times for me, like a, a resurrection. Yeah. Yeah. Music-wise, I'm not feeling it at the minute. Yeah, as I said in in the previous chart music where we covered 1975, this is a, the period where my dad is staying in a bit too early, and it all depends whether he wants a pint or not whether I could watch Top of the Pops. I haven't got Tony Bones' mum anymore, so it'd be me, like, sitting around after tea time, basically trying to encourage my dad to go out and get pissed so I could watch Top of the Pops. Because, the, I mean, the big problem was is that $6 million man's on at the same time, and he mm. liked that. Right. He wasn't that um, up on the bionic woman, though. Oh, yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. I, d- I don't think he liked the idea of uh, machine women. Mm. But no bloody point having a bionic woman as soon as they brought dishwashers in, eh, chaps? <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. But I mean, the thing about the bionic woman was, you know, Steve Austin, to show how, how bionic he was, he, like, he'd show him jumping over buildings yeah. and, you know, giving people a, a good biffing. Yeah. Jamie Summers, she just squeezes a tennis ball. Mm. <laughs> that was it. That was the extent of her powers. Mm. I think that was supposed to be symbolic, don't you? Yeah. Yes, I, I, I think I, so. <laughs> I, I tell you what I don't like about the $6 million man. He's really unimpressive now because you know how yeah. the price of electronics just drops and keeps dropping. Yeah. Like You know when you see adverts from like 1981 for Curry's or Dixon's and it's like a calculator mm. is 100 quid. You know, yeah. It's like forty nine ninety nine for a fucking toaster. So I'm just thinking if the... If you look at... Yeah, so I'm thinking if the $6 million man was around now, he'd be about 300 quid. Yeah. You know, and the size of your <laughs> fingernail. The, the downloadable as free software, man. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> this is a, it's a proper pendulum of an episode, isn't it, this one? Mm, it mm. swings back and forth like the flares sported by a lot of the people on this episode. Oh, I mean, you know, the thing about me at this time, I mean, I, you know... Top of the Pops, it was still, you know, the highlight of the week. I mean, it was yes. it was the chips. It was the salt and vinegar chips on the plate of my of my life. Yeah, I mean, a week that I went without Top of the Pops did seem like a wasted week in my life at this time. Yeah, that, was, it, that would be unthinkable. So before we go any further, we do our usual thing of dipping a hand into the crates and pulling out an issue of the music press from this week. And this time... I've managed to find Melody Maker, March the 22nd, 1975. Shall we peruse, chaps? Do. On the cover. Yes, yes, 160,000 times yes, screams the main headline on the cover, announcing Yes's forthcoming UK tour, which will be taken in gigs at Stoke City and Queen's Park Rangers. They will be doing a two and a half to three hour show playing selections from all their albums together with snatches from the solo LPs, says manager Brian Lane. Yeah, and if you like that, they'll do a fourth song. (laughs) (laughs) The bottom half is taken up with a photo of the Bay City Rollers who have announced their new UK tour which will commence in a month's time and culminate with a gig at Wembley's Empire Pool at the end of June. They've also announced a new manager for their forthcoming push into America, Sid Bernstein, who promoted the first Beatles, Stones and Kinks tours of the USA and promoted the Beatles gig at Shea Stadium. In the news, a full page has been given over to a review of the final night of the Rainbow Theatre in London, featuring Kevin Coyne, Richard and Linda Thompson, 
Procore Horum, Hatfield and the North, John Martin and Sassafras and Steve Lake wasn't impressed. Nah. The whole shebang was a suburban scaled down version of Fillmore The Last Days, he writes, before recalling the time that Miles Davis played there and there were banners strung about that spelled his name wrong and he was served watermelon backstage. <sighs> The Rainbow would reopen a couple of years later before shutting down for good in 1981. It was goodbye. Goodbye. Yeah, I used to live near the Rainbow. It was a depressing sight. Because, you know, it eventually became a money church, um, Mm. which I think is what it still is. Yeah, Um, yeah. it is, yeah. And they had all posters like uh, billboards up all around it that they'd paid for. with sort of women like testimonies for people going, my son had cancer until I went to this church and now he's all right and all that sort. Until I saw Boa. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like, I'd, I'd, yeah, I don't know. I'd rather rather have been watching Sassafras <laughs> with Steve Lake. Elton John has announced that he's boycotting British television after pulling out of a performance on Top of the Pops when the Musicians Union demanded that he recorded a new backing track for his latest single. Philadelphia Freedom, and he counted the allotted time that he'd been given to do it, three hours was insufficient. The article points out that until the beginning of this year, the MU had ruled that a band or artist had to re-record a new backing track for each specific show. Elton has been supported by Andy Scott of Sweet, Roy Wood, who points out that as he plays everything on his records, it would take ages to do it, and Ian Bernson of Pilot, who says, if you're on tour and have a record in the charts, and this is the way things are usually planned by the record companies, you would have to take two days a week off to fit in the sessions for Top of the Pops. And obviously, you're going to try your damnedest to recreate the sound as closely as possible. So what's the point? Mm. Union well, madness, you see. It's like carry on at your convenience, isn't it? Mm. Although the musicians' union genuinely was a bunch of dicks um, <laughs> a lot of the time. Mm. I mean, the thing about that is that everyone just used to get around it anyway. You'd just, uh, you'd just ring yeah. up your engineer and say, can you do a very slightly different mix of the new single? And they'd just mm-hmm. give them that. And they go, oh, you mm. went in and re-recorded it. Yes, we did. Yeah, no one could tell the difference. <laughs> you can see, mm. you can tell the rubes who take them at their word as well. In this particular episode, naming yes. no names as yet, one act who have quite clearly re-recorded their record. And my <laughs> God, does it sound like it's done in three hours? Mm. <laughs> Brian Connolly and Steve Priest of Sweet have been informed that they face a six-month jail sentence if they ever set foot in Belgium again. <sighs> That's going to be a tough one to live with. Yeah. <laughs> After, quote, obscene behaviour at a gig late last year. <laughs> Raining power, Steve. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Elvis Presley has been announced as the male lead in the forthcoming Barbara Streisand film A Star Is Born, but it never comes off as the colonel wouldn't let him and the part goes to Chris Christopherson instead. Oh, Elvis. It could have been a bit like Apocalypse Now, really, if he'd turned up at that point. Uh, yes. You know, like Marlon Brando, didn't he, on the yes. set? Can you imagine, though, if you went through all that shit in Apocalypse <laughs> Now and in the end there's Elvis in a cave <laughs> with a fucking massive 99? <laughs> <laughs> I love the taste of monkey blood in the morning. <laughs> Radio Trent. The new commercial radio station for Nottinghamshire announces their new signing. 
Kid Jensen of Radio Luxembourg, who is currently presenting the ITV Kids Pop Show Rock on 45. And Robin Le Mesurier, the son of John Le Mesurier and Hattie Jakes, and his new band Shambles have been signed to RCA. Says the maker, you may know him better as the Womble who got busted. <laughs> yeah. Intimate knowledge of the Wombles was a, was a given back then. Yeah. Inside the paper, well, Brian Harrigan nips up to the ATV studios in Birmingham to record a day in the life of New Faces, the Saturday evening talent show, which has already given the world show waddy waddy and sweet sensation, and follows around the harmony group Fresh Air and the folk band Flaky Pastry. <laughs> Isn't that the most mid-70s name for a band ever? Yeah, yeah. That's a band who don't really want to be successful. Mm, yeah, mm. It's, a, it's a punch ticket plus flaky pastry. <laughs> you know Harry out of um, the Sultans of Swing? That's he'd call a band flaky pastry, wouldn't he? <laughs> <laughs> but if this is 1975, I would imagine... Brian Harrigan probably didn't go far because I believe he would have been the Birmingham uh, stringer at that point. And mm-hmm. as a, a only really remembered as the the big metalhead of the British music mm. press, I suspect he wasn't that impressed by a televised talent competition. No, am I right? He discovers that most of the acts are far from new, having been in the likes of Candlewick Green and the Midgel Five. Yeah. One of the contestants. The Soulettes are actually the Rebelettes who are currently backing Dwayne Eddy in his comeback. And he muses that rock acts are poorly served by a judging panel, which includes Arthur Asker. (laughs) (laughs) By the end of the night, we learn that Peter Grant of Led Zeppelin is being lined up as a judge. And the green room is bum-rushed by Billy Wright, Shaw Taylor, Mike Reed and the cast of Crossroads who pile into the rider of bottles of brown ale and scotch eggs. (laughs) It sounds like some of the dreams I've been having in lockdown. Jeff Brown pops over to Paris which is now the second or third home of Sparks, who have just announced their involvement in the Jacques Tati film Confusion, which is to be the final Monsieur Hulot film. They talk about how much they're looking forward to it, that they're thinking of permanently relocating to France, and that their next single will be called Get in the Swing. Alas, despite writing the theme tune, the backing for Confusion never transpired and the film never happened. Oh, that that is tragic, that. Can you imagine Sparks and Jacques Tati? That that could have been... uh, Yeah. Wow. Chris Charlesworth files two interviews from New York with two singer-songwriters, Harry Shapin and Don McLean. The former introduces himself as a hard-ass liberal who uses TV cameras and giant screens in a proto-multimedia stage show, while the latter hopes his next single, about a one-legged hobo who dies when he falls off a train and is then mummified and displayed around America in a travelling carnival, will make people forget all about American Pie. Oh, Madonna didn't cover that one, did she? I genuinely did get confused between... um this Don McLean and, and the sidekick to Peter Glaze and thought they yes. were kind of one at the same, you know, you know oh, a bit yeah. like Ken Dodd, yeah. you know, you've got your serious music career and your career as a sort of tatty hilarious mirth maker. Yeah. Yeah, I got a really clear memory of walking into Boots in Kidderminster when Boots used to sell records and had the top 20 on the wall and it was there yeah. uh, uh, crying Don McLean. And yes. I was like, 
just I remember just standing there with like my head exploding, <laughs> asking my mum about it. She didn't fucking know. <laughs> Alan Jones goes to the Lyceum to investigate their monthly Ted revival night and starts shitting himself when the taxi driver refuses to drop him off anywhere near the venue. <laughs> he links up with the DJ team, the Wild Wax Show, who tell him that business has picked up right across the country. They've started to do loads of sets at US air bases. You have to spend at least 80 quid on an outfit that passes muster. Modern day Elvis is is ridiculous now and last night they played a ted pub with a stripper but she got booed off for doing a routine to the alex harvey band <laughs> jones also has a natter with kevin coyne at virgin's offices in notting hill who talks about his forthcoming lp matching head and feet and says that if this release doesn't put him over the top he'll ask to join the stylistics Ooh, yeah. Um, yes. oh, i would have liked to see yeah mm. Jones also does a phone with Emmy Lou Harris, who talks about her working relationship with Graham Parsons and hopes that she'll get to play a few dates in the UK before long. Meanwhile, Alvin Lee confirms that 10 years after are officially no more and he's been spending his downtime working on his vegetable garden, or at least watching his gardener work on his vegetable garden, and he talks about his new band, Alvin Lee & Co., Oh, can you imagine them on top of the pops? <laughs> the centre spread is called The Selling of Rock and features Ray Coleman at Carnegie Hall to cover the world premiere playback of Justin Haywood and John Lodger's new LP Blue Jays and Stephen Gaines dropping in on Tommy Knight at the National Association of Record Merchants in Los Angeles as Polydor drums up interest in the forthcoming soundtrack of the Tommy film. On the singles page, Colin Irwin is in the chair and his single of the week is I Ain't Gonna Stand For This No More by Ace. Much more obvious and poppy than how long, it swings gently with just enough punch to let you know it means business. Five times it has revolved around the MM Office record player and it remains as compulsively listenable as the first time. A monster-sized hit. I miss that kind of music, Ryan. It's like Krusty the Clown doing voiceovers. You know, where he's just got the cars. He goes, hey, hey, hi, kids. And then you just hear a car pull it off. It's, just, it's so easy. Uh, but it's funny, but someone like Colin Irwin, I mean, he was a melody maker and he, you know, he, he wrote lots of like really beautiful stuff, but I could fully imagine him doing that as well. I mean, he he, um, he was like absolutely really, really very, very expert on like folk music or whatever. He did have a sort yeah. of slightly skewed pop sensibility. He went on to edit Number One magazine, so maybe this is that side of Colin, you know, perhaps manifesting yeah, he's itself. A, he's, a, he's a funny bloke as mm, well, go, and yeah. he uh, he co-wrote the that ABBA biography with mm. Andrew Lou Goldham. Yeah, wow, um, which is you know. Not perhaps not the most historically rigorous ABBA biography I've ever read, <laughs> but it, it is one of uh, one of the the funnier ones. Mm -hmm. Tangled up in blue by Bob Dylan is equally frothed over the outstanding cut from the Blood on the Tracks album, and in single form must split the chart apart. The only blight on its chart potential is its length over five minutes, which will seriously threaten David Hamilton's waffle time, but it's got to be a rhino-sized hit. It mm. failed to chart. Yes. 
Irwin surprises even himself by praising Take Your Mama for a Ride, the new single by Lulu. There she is, all cosy and warm with her crummy Saturday night TV show. But every so often, she comes up with a really good single. This is one of them. (laughs) However, it's a coat down for some way, somehow I'm keeping you by the times. An incredibly boring old song. As a passing dustman has just so rightly commentated, it could have been made any time in the last 12 years. The Welly Boot song by Billy Connolly gets a thumb at right angles. Scottish ancestry prevents me from saying too much, except that it's Connolly. Typically lovable slash loathsome, depending on whether you like Celtic idiocy. Irwin points out that New York Girls, the latest single from Steel Eye Span, has a special guest playing the ukulele, Peter Sellers. He likes it, but doesn't think it will be a hit. He was right. In fact, none of the singles reviewed in Melody Maker this week made the top 100. Mm. Fucking hell, that's a poor strike rate. I never realised that Tangled Up in Blue was released as a single. I didn't even know that. In the LP section, the main review this week is given over to Blow by Blow by Jeff Beck, and Steve Lake thinks it's cat shit. Shed a tear for Jeff Beck, the man who gave us guitar feedback and one of the early 60s great rock innovators now reduced to chasing fleeting images of what he might have been and generally proceeding with all the directional sense of a headless chicken, he writes. The debut LP by Ian Hunter, called Ian Hunter, gets a meaty thumbs up from Chris Welch. Whatever problems and pressures Hunter, that bruised and battered master of superstardom, has undergone under the past few months, he swiftly throws caution to the wind and shouts loud and clear his commitment to rock. (laughs) The soundtrack to the Tommy film has been covered by Michael Watts and he deems it a necessary companion work to the original Who album. Really? Yeah. But it's a coat down for Mad Dog by John Entwistle's Ox. His music sounds like it's been salvaged from a K-Tel or Music for Pleasure album, says Alan Jones. Mm. Kiss, the debut LP by Kiss, has finally been released in the UK and Alan Jones immediately recognises that they stink of unwashed It becomes agonisingly clear after the first couple of numbers that Kiss are closer in spirit to the more obese and wretched forms of rock and roll as previously represented by the likes of Rick Wakeman and Argent than they are to the MC5, Flaming Groovies and the Stooges. Journey the debut LP by Journey, Extravaganza by Stackridge, and Sunday's Child by John Martin appraised, while sold out by Scaffold, Peace and Love by Dadawar, and Turn of the Cards by Renaissance are lobbed in a Binwoodly direction. Mm. In the gig guide, David could have seen Lou Reed at Hammersmith Odeon, Anne Peebles at Dingwalls, Stackridge at the Greyhound, or Ace at Victoria Palace but probably didn't. Taylor could have nipped out to Barbarella's to see The Times and Anne Peebles, Ossie Beeser at Aston University, or Caravan and Renaissance at the Birmingham Town Hall. 
Neil could have checked out Soft Machine playing a benefit for the Triumph Workers Cooperative at Lanchester Pole and fuck all else. Sarah could have witnessed Hunter Ronson at Sheffield City Hall, Charles Aznavour at the Wakefield Theatre Club, Gilbert O'Sullivan at the Fiesta in Sheffield, or the Roubettes at the Whole City Hall. Al could have seen the Spinners, the folk version, at Nottingham Albert Hall, or gone to Leicester to see 10cc at the De Montford Hall. And Simon could have seen the root bets at Brangwyn Hall in Swansea, one of the last gigs the Groundhogs would ever play at Glamorgan Polly, Steve Harley and Cockney Rebel at Cardiff Capital Theatre, or Manfred Mann's Earth Band in Traforest Polly. Fucking hell. <laughs> All going on in Wales. Yeah. In the letters page... The main topic of conversation is Alan Jones's article last week about a movement he calls Drip Rock, where he bemoans the surfeit of soft lads with guitars who have sprayed their musk upon the first half of the 70s. <laughs> Pete Waddington, who runs a record shop in Manchester, is dead sarcastic and asks Jones if he can send a list of the records he has in stock for him to vet. David Yates in London asks him not to be so vindictive and just mellow out, man. While Richard Stackett and Anthony Eden of Rains Park take offence at his coat down of Crosby, Stills and Nash. We can see nothing particularly anemic in the words of our house. It is the celebration of two people enjoying living together and taking stock of the things around them. Bollocks is a fucking awful song. I hate that song. Yeah, it's. The, I mean, I'm weirdly tolerant of Crosby, Stills and Nash. Um, I like the sound of them. But, yeah, as soon as Graham Nash pipes up, it's, uh, you know... Yeah, Crosby, mm. Stills and Gash, more like. Ugh. I mean, Jonesy, I think, is, at this point, I mean, he's, he's clearly beginning to sort of ruffle feathers, and I think that's kind of what he was brought on board to do. And, I mean, he is a kind of harbinger of what's eventually going to happen in the next sort of phase of the music press. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, as are all those letters mm. uh, responding to somebody saying that they don't like something by going, yeah. well, I don't see anything yeah. wrong with that. Right. <laughs> well, good, good for you. Yeah. Good for you. Perhaps if you could write that in a slightly more entertaining way, you could come and do this for a living. But mm. it's like, you know, <laughs> these fucking, well, these so-called critics, mm. they can't even do their job. All they do is criticise. <laughs> Could I give the shadows a very valuable piece of advice? Don't waste your bus fare going to the Eurovision Song Contest. Your song is a non-starter, writes Leslie Bleasdale of Shipley. The whole <laughs> system is cockeyed at the moment. A better idea would be to give the viewers a chance for a short list of groups, not songs. Then let the group, or its usual songwriters, produce its own material. If the success of ABBA is anything to go by, something fresh and original will be needed to win. Oh dear, still, there's always next year. Mm. Yes, there was. Brotherhood of Man. Did the Shadows ask Eurovision for an inquiry as to why they didn't win? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and Chris Jenkins of Stevenage writes, I still can't believe that water has to be frozen before Steve Harley can walk on it. Mm. Oh, and the following advert appears in the back pages. It's all happening at Pountney's Hounslow Hair Centre. <laughs> Pountney's, famous with Melody Maker readers for many years, has helped and advised many superstars. 
It's always been ahead on modern hairstyling, quoted to be London's most up-to-date hair establishment, with four divisions to deal with hairstyling, hair transplanting, hair loss and hair replacement problems. Pountney's hair transplant method is performed by qualified surgeons. This is a method of transplanting your own hair to the balding parts, after which the hair grows continually. It's a medical solution at any stage of hair loss. Find out more by calling or phoning Pountney's Hair Transplant Clinic and Hair Styling Centre. Own private car park. <laughs> yeah, and space is at a premium in Hounslow, so, you know. Yes. Look at that. It's the, do you like having chunks of your ripped-out pubes plunged into your head like like a plastic doll head while yes. aeroplanes fly overhead about three foot yes. above the roof? <laughs> then come to Poundies. Famous yeah. with melody maker readers. Which of the many superstars have they helped an advisor wonder? I bet Elton's been there. Well, I'm looking at the picture on this advert. It appears to be a picture of Captain Beefheart playing the bass. <laughs> I wonder why he wore that hat. Who would risk a hair transplant procedure in 1975? <laughs> Can you imagine it, man? Getting your head under a massive fucking singer's sewing machine. <laughs> <laughs> it really was. And it was like, you know, four months later, you know, you open a cupboard door in your kitchen and bump it onto your forehead and it all falls out. Yeah. Didn't that happen to, like, Russ Abbott or somebody? Yeah. Elton John or something. I mean, Elton John's was probably, it was like Christine Barnard and the first successful heart transplant, wasn't it? Wasn't it? It sent me to God as the, the first successful hair transplant. And um, and it was just atrocious, wasn't it? I thought, you know, if you're going to go to this kind yeah. of follicle by Did they do the first hair transplant on monkeys first? <laughs> <laughs> just having to go out into the wilds to find a balding monkey. All the kind of excruciating pain and the follicle by follicle treatment and the money he must have like spent on it. The, you know, you could have come up with a better barn than that yeah it wasn't a follicle by follicle treatment in those days it was like no. uh, they just basically drew a noughts and crosses board on your head <laughs> and it was like each bit just you know like a carpet tile sewn in mm-hmm. oh hair update pop crazy youngsters uh it looks fucking awful I'm now at the stage where I'm a cross between mm. uh, those scientists in the T-Fall adverts and a testicle. It's <laughs> fucking horrible. And I can't get rid of it. I made the big error of telling my niece about it. And uh, she was really upset and said, oh, but you won't look like my Al anymore. Mm. And so to calm her down, I said, look, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. Next time I see her, I'll let you shave it all off. And now I'm bound to it. Yeah. And she lives in Shropshire. So it's going to be fucking, God knows when I'm going to see her again. <laughs> She's got one word for you, Al. Poundness. Yes. <laughs> the place to be for the balding heads. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, 64 pages, 12p. I never knew there was so much in it. Would you want to be a music journalist in the mid-70s? You know, we all talk about golden eras. This doesn't seem to be one. Oh, well, I mean, it was golden era. I mean, like you mentioned Chris Charlesworth. Um, he was, like, um, an American correspondent. And, um, yeah, he got paid. Obviously, he got, his, he got his full wage, and he would also have an apartment paid for him out in LA or New York where it was whatever you know just to have us a base out there um yes they very much would have wanted to be a music journalist at that point yeah we'd like a little two kilos of cocaine being courier biked to your desk by mm. the record company you know <laughs> so the closest I ever got to that mm. I was mm. once doing the singles and some bloke sent me a record with a mm. 
on the press release, he'd sellotaped to it a little bit of hash that was about, you know, about the size of a, a, a pebble that you'd find in the bottom of a fish tank. <laughs> and uh, he was like, hey, enjoy the gear. Oh, no. I hope you get a chance to review this record. So, you know, I reviewed the record, mm. and at the end I said, it's bribe-tastic. <laughs> um, just, you know, just in case I was in any doubt <laughs> as to why I pretended it was good. <laughs> I never got anything. I didn't get any kind of inducements whatsoever. I did once get sent um, a, a fish, a dead fish in the post by Alex <laughs> Costello after a, an ambivalent review I did of it and, um, with a little note attached to saying I should do, you know, take time out and slap myself around the oh. face with it. So, yeah, it was a bit, bit, bit thin-skinned, I think, really. It wasn't like a kind of slag-off or anything. Um, I sort of did, you know, kind of pro and anti Elvis Costello, but you've seen him, which I certainly, you know, like, I, I, and I sort of like became a dual self, you know, so the pros of Elvis Costello, the cons of Elvis Costello, and a sort of dialogue, you know, ensued, Socratic, if you will. So didn't he send you something nice as well, in the spirit of the article? No, no, exactly. I mean, see, I've got... It was oh, just, Elvis. Um, yeah, he just took... I know, exactly. So what else was on telly this day? Well, BBC One commences at 9.41am with two and a half hours of schools and college programmes. Then it shuts down for a quarter of an hour before coming back hard with the 6.07.08.0 show, the Roy Hood show that does something for the oldens. After a five-minute news bulletin, it's Pebble Mill at one, followed by the Herbs and another hour of school's programmes before closing down again for 58 minutes. Then it's regional news in your area, play school, Dinsdale Landon reading The Man in Black in Jackanore, John Craven's news round, Lizzie Dripping again, Barbara Popper, the news, regional news in your area, nationwide, and they've just finished what do you expect? Tomorrow's world. BBC Two starts at 6.40am with an hour and a half of sexy open university action. And then we close down until 11 when Brian Kant does the very hungry caterpillar on play school. Then it closes down for another six hours, coming back at 5.25 with even more open university. They're about 10 minutes away from Newsday with Michael Charlton. ITV kicks off at 9.30 with two and a half hours of school's programmes. Then Bungle learns about near and far in Rainbow. Then it's Flower Stories, where Alan Taylor reads a story about a green elephant who wonders if elephants should roar or not. Hey, it's something we've all contemplated during lockdown, I suppose. Mike Smith, not that one, takes a look at the all-purpose handyman's machine in Jobs Around the House. Then it's First Report with Robert Key. Then this week's Crown Court involves an argument over the sanity of a man who signed away all his money to the Moonies. Then it's Women Only with Jan Lehman, followed by General Hospital, racing from Doncaster, around the world in 80 days. Then it's Rock On with 45, where Kid Jensen presents Hello and Peebles and the Rubettes from the Hard Rock Disco in Manchester. After the news and regional news in your area, Meg Mortimer is balls deep into her wedding preparations in Crossroads. We are currently 20 minutes into the $6 million man, with Steve Austin teaming up with a beautiful girl with exceptional ESP abilities, again, to look for a missing scientist, again, in the Florida Everglades, again. Well, that's me, fucked. 
Mm. No Top of the Pops action for Al tonight, then. Oh. I would have watched every minute of all of that. Yeah. Telly, it was like a two-bar grill, basically. Yes. You just huddled around it. Yeah, anything. Fucking um, Women Only with Jan Lehman. You'd watch that. Yeah, it was on. Moving pictures, you see, mm. in the corner of your room. Mm. Absolutely. Anything there jumping out of you, Tony? No, I've got the same listings in front of me. And I'm thinking later on, it gets pretty good. Mm. There's man about the house. Yeah. I mean, we can all think of one person who uh, we may be meeting sometime very soon who probably wouldn't have been watching. No. But uh, other than that, yeah, no. the Sweeney. Yeah. I think if I remember that rightly, the man about the house is that Robin, um, there's some I don't know, lockdown type thing, and Robin is looking forward to um, sharing a bed that night until he finds out who it's with. Yeah, hey, no spoilers. <laughs> yeah. All right, chaps, I think, we're, I think we've laid the table, if you will, mm. for, for this episode of Top Ops. So we're going to leave it here for a minute and extend an invitation to the Polk Radiances to reassemble a day from now and we'll get stuck properly into this episode of Top of the Pops. So thank you very much, Taylor Parks. All right. Thank you very much, David Stubbs. No, thank you. George, by the way. George Roper, he would have been sleeping with just <laughs> Stop it! <laughs> stay safe. Stay comfortable, but above all, stay pop crazed. Chart music. Oh, hello you. My name's Tom Price. Hello, I'm Dave Cribb. You should come and join us every day. We do a podcast called Cabin Fever, where we talk to loads of comedians who've had to cancel everything else in their lives. So they come on our podcast instead, don't they, Dave? Yeah, it's an isolation podcast. Uh, Dave, were you yawning at the start of that sentence then? Was it just a little yawn? Yeah, it's basically the Great Big Owl isolation podcast. We'll have people on from all our podcasts, from your Ruler Threes, your Brian and Rogers, your musicals, your bitchins. If you like any of our podcasts, if you like any of those people, chances are they'll be logging onto the Zoom call and just chatting, because let's face it, they got nothing else to do. Also, there'll be a quiz on the bill. All right, see you soon. Lots of love. Cabin F-E-A-3709. Oh, 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 that's our Twitter name. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.